Hey, it's Jesse. Katie and I sat down on Wednesday to record an episode about a media controversy that escalated faster than we ever could have thought. It got pretty crazy pretty quickly, and we eventually decided to release this episode for all on Friday morning instead of Monday morning as it would usually come out because it just seems like it will be hopelessly out of date by then. So I hope you enjoy, but if you don't see a new episode Monday in your feed, that's because this is next week's episode. Also, I think this will be clear in context, but uh, when you get to the outro music, don't turn the episode off, please. There is significantly more to come. Thanks. All news is biased one way or another. Sometimes it's unconscious, just plain human nature, but sometimes it's intentional. Like when Katie tries to connect every major national news story to her big dumb dog, Moose. The outcome is the same. Bias in the news impacts how we see the world. Adding in online filter bubbles only makes things worse and makes it harder to get the full story than ever before. Ground News, the world's first news comparison platform, has taken a different approach to improving the broken media ecosystem. Ground News gives you the ability to compare how sources with different biases are covering a story so you can easily see if it's being spun to fit a political narrative. Their app also alerts you to any news blind spots that you may have, stories that were only covered by one side of the political spectrum. As a listener of Blockchain Reported, you're likely more interested in informed news and commentary rather than consuming yet more regurgitated partisan hackery. Ground News enables you to get that sort of information for every story you read. It's a place for anyone who is tired of predictable mainstream narratives and interested in leaving their silo to see the fuller story. Learn more and try it for yourself by downloading the free Ground News app or try it on the web at ground.news blocked. Again, that's ground.news slash blocked. Katie, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, I wanted to ask you about a tweet that I saw the other day. Normally, I try to ignore your tweets, but this one just sort of caught my attention. Rarely happens, but it did this time. I'm going to read it to you. At Jesse Single, I got an assignment from The New Yorker a couple years ago, got to travel for it, was so excited, took months to report and write it, and then the first draft elicited the most searing rejection I've ever gotten in my life, making it clear the piece was dead on arrival. Jesse, what the fuck did you do? What happened? How did you blow this? So just to be clear, you're not interested in my tweets until I tweet something humiliating or negative that happened to me, and then suddenly you're full of questions. It's weird how that works, isn't it? Uh, okay, so so I believe I was quote retweeting someone who mentioned uh, failure and how I think the context was like in journalism we often don't talk about our failures or we're not uh, you know aware of other people's failures. So. Yeah, basically, um, a few years ago, I cold pitched a story to a New Yorker editor. He accepted it. I got to travel to Canada. It was about basically, I don't want to give away two details because I still have this fantasy that I'll be able to place this story somewhere, although that's probably unlikely. Basically, it was about pedophilia and, and sort of treatments for it and some controversy over that. This was exciting. I was like on assignment for the New Yorker, dream publication to write for. And it took so long to fly to Canada, two different cities, do all these interviews, do all this reading. And then I submitted a draft. And I think that day, it was just a very negative rejection letter that made it clear the piece would never run in the New Yorker. Oh, God, that is so humiliating. You must have been just fucking devastated. I mean, I think I react pretty well to that because, like, I've had plenty of rejections uh, <laughs> professionally, <laughs> romantically. socially, romantically. The 
I was very frustrated. But what I realized is like, you know, for the piece to get swatted away that hard suggested I did a shitty job. And as a writer, you don't always know when you did a shitty job. It requires readers to tell you that or a reader. So yeah, it was definitely... I feel like it was a missed opportunity. I would have had a good relationship with a New Yorker editor. I could have done more for them. Um, I really feel like I blew it. And I think any career, I mean, of any sort, there's moments when you feel like you blew it. But um, look, obviously, everyone who listens to this or follows me on Twitter, I come across as just a perfect person Mm -hmm. who's never done anything wrong. But I'm hoping to dispel that myth a little bit. That's so humble of you. Um, I had a not as traumatic a rejection, but... The, it might have been the the very first piece that I pitched for the stranger when I was a freelancer. Um, it was about it was it was like a weed issue or something like that, um, like issue of the magazine, and uh, which was like every other one. And I I wrote a piece about uh, I believe it was about getting stopped at the bo- I was driving across the country and I got stopped by the border patrol in New Mexico and I had about a half an ounce of weed on me. Um, so it was about that little experience, and it was. It not just rejected, it was just humiliatingly rejected. It was just totally spiked in a way that was like, you are a horrible person. You are, your privilege is showing. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> your privilege is showing. Two years later, you're, I'm working at the paper. Two years later, I took that exact piece, pitched it to the exact same editor, and it was published with basically no changes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the weird things about writing, and I think this is probably true of like all sorts of writing, is like, first of all, different publications have different standards. Like, the New Yorker can afford to have the highest standards in the world because they, everyone wants to write for them. They have access to the best writers. So there might not be the incentive to like work with a writer, especially an unfamiliar one, and make the story better. But also, you could send like the same story or the same pitch to two different editors at the same publication and just get totally different responses. There's something like really random to that aspect of what we do. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's sort of a crapshoot. A lot of it has to do with luck and like whether your editor is in a good mood or not. Um, there are definitely no like hard and fast rules about how to, how to get published in this industry. Um, yeah, finding somebody on a good day is probably the best way to do it. I will say, like, I mentioned this on Twitter, but I have seen some writers, I think mostly younger ones, like, publish rejection notes, like, indignantly, like the editor did something wrong. And that is, like, such a stupid idea. Because sometimes, I didn't think my New Yorker rejection was unfair, but sometimes you do get an unfair rejection. The last thing you want to do is advertise that that's what you're going to do if an editor says no to you. I mean, can you imagine a, a bigger neon sign saying, like, I'm an asshole, don't work with me? Right. That's actually sort of a perfect segue into one of the things we're going to be talking about. But first, this is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, we are going to be talking about drama happening at the hit Gimlet podcast, Reply All. But before we do that, can I just follow up on one thing from the last episode? Oh, yeah, please do. We'd mentioned a John Chait article about... um What's her name? Gina Carano. Oh, Gina Carano, who is now uh, who is now going to be starring in a Daily Wire production with Ben Shapiro. <laughs> There's no such thing as cancel culture. Yeah. Come on, no more access to Lucasfilm, but she can make a movie with Ben Shapiro. That is kind of funny. This is this is like when somebody tweeted yesterday. I can't re- re- remember who this was, but I but somebody tweeted yesterday that Alison Roman isn't truly canceled because, sure, she doesn't have her column at the New York Times anymore, but she's on YouTube and she has a Substack. <laughs> I know. Um, 
this is a little thing, but I was actually talking to, to John Shade about some of this, and and he he thought that we had sort of gotten his column wrong, and that we we'd said he was directly comparing what happened to Corano to a blacklist. His point was a little more subtle than that, and I think it's worth making that distinction. He was more saying the justification used to you know uh, sever her from her job is the same justification you could use for making the blacklist. Like what's the principle that would cause you to be in favor of one or the other, which I think is a fair point. He also, he mentioned a teacher who lost her job after 10 year old video of her mentioning the N word came to light. I had said, I thought it was maybe from uh, Huck Finn or something like that. It was all, it was actually from like a book about racism. So even, even less uh, justification for firing her. So that was just an insane story. I wanted to clarify, but which, uh, so we're starting with reply all. Yeah, let's start with Reply All. Um, Jesse, do you listen to Reply All? I do. I have slightly less lately, but I've actually been a fan. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think one of the more successful podcasts in the world, one of the more beloved ones. It's co-hosted by PJ Vogt and uh, Adam Goldman. Uh, Alex. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's co-hosted by PJ Vogt and uh, Adam Goldman. It's- <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> This is like some kind of like Freudian mental block. It's it's co-hosted by a PJ Vote and uh, Adam Goldman. Alex. <laughs> Again, nothing but professionalism. Alex, Alex Goldman. Yes, like Alex, Alex Bloomberg. I always mix them up. Okay. This, I think, has started as just like a WNYC side project for them when they were interns. And it's like, it's it's skyrocketed. It's now, I think, basically the anchor podcast of Gimlet, uh, which is a successful media company started by Alex Bloomberg. He's from Your World, I believe, like public radio. He worked for uh, NPR. Um, do, so have you, li- I can describe it a little bit. Have you listened to Much Reply All? Yeah, I think I've probably listened to all of them. Um, one quick correction here. So their previous show, the, the show that Alex and PJ made together before before moving to Gimlet, before Reply All, was called TLDR. Um, yes. And I think they were they were made it not as, pre- not as interns, but as sort of low-level producers for On the Media, the WNYC show On the Media. It's a show about the internet, basically. Yeah, sorry. I, I obviously got some of those details wrong. Right. They, they took the show, TLDR became Reply All, but it's the same show. I think like, uh, I take it. Yeah. WNYC just probably owned the name. Um, but yeah. Okay. You've listened to all of it and you don't consume any media usually. So you like it. It, It's well, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) I consume a lot of, of radio and a lot of podcasts. Um, and despite the fact that there are a billion podcasts, there's a podcast for every fucking person in this country. It seems there's not a lot of podcasts that can actually hold my interest. Reply All is an exception to that. That has been changing recently, and we're going to get into all of this. But the 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 show was originally about um about sort of sort of what this show is dumb internet bullshit. But it's much more highly produced, much more reported. Um, so at their best, I think they find some online phenomenon and they explain it really well. They do some investigation. But the show has has taken a sort of turn in the past year. Have you noticed that? Well, I mean, I was going to say, like, first of all, I like it for the same reasons. I also think it's, like, very humanistic. And the whereas you and I hate each other and that enmity just, like, threatens to tarnish everything we do, these guys are really friends and they have a great rapport and that really drives the show. And it's, like, I just have found it to be, like, a – I don't know. I'm not a positive guy, but it's a positive podcast and it it pulls that off. I. My general read, having listened to it a little bit less, is that – tell me if I'm stereotyping here if this is fair. I think after George Floyd, like 
everyone in media decided they needed to do the same thing or versions of the same thing. Right. And like they, you could no longer just continue doing what you're doing. Is that what you sort of think happened to Reply All? Yes. Uh, maybe it's slightly more gradual than that. Um, but yes. So one thing that has happened in public radio world recently, especially after, uh, after the death of George Floyd, and as you mentioned, um, Alex Bloomberg, who started Gimlet Media, and PJ and Alex both, and a lot of, a lot of other people who work at Gimlet or have worked at Gimlet all come from the public radio world. Um, is so diversity has has long been a problem, or the lack of diversity has long been a problem within public radio, and it's sort of like overnight all of the so for years, especially black and and other black and brown staffers in public radio have been complaining about this, and it's sort of like overnight public radio decided to listen. So like Fresh Air, I love Fresh Air. Fresh Air has not done a good job of of diversifying that show over the past thirty years. Like most of the guests are are white men. Um, I don't know what the percentage is. This American Life too. Um, I'm not sure about Reply All, but a lot of these shows they're just incredibly white, much like this show. And overnight, that sort of changed. Well, no, you're. I'm Jewish, and you're a lesbian. Neither of us is white. <laughs> Yes, I like your intersectional math there, Jesse. Um, so, so it does seem like sort of overnight that changed. I think the reply all shift is maybe going back a little bit, a little bit further than, than the George Floyd killing. But there has been a real shift recently from this sort of, you know, fun, not super serious. I mean, they did have some serious episodes, but oftentimes it was just sort of fun. I, I was trying to in the show, like when we were doing notes, I was trying to describe what they were. They were never, they were sort of apolitical. Like you yeah. knew they were progressive. They would say, you know, the right things from time to time. It was an escapist show, wouldn't you say? Right. Yes, yes, and that has certainly changed. Um, so, like, I remember listening. This is one of the reasons that I'm I'm not that interested in 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 the show anymore. Like after uh, the inauguration, they did they did they like a call in show about the inauguration. And someone called in and said it was, uh, I think, a black guy or maybe a black woman, and said, you know, I was watching the, I was watching the inauguration, and there was this like loud bang, and I knew just for a moment, I knew that they had like someone, a white supremacist, had come to like kill Kamala Harris, and PJ and Alex' response to that was like, yeah, that's a totally rational. Uh, response to have. And I don't actually think that's a, like, if you hear a loud bang because there's like fireworks going off because it's a fucking, uh, you know, inauguration or whatever it is, I actually don't think that that's a rational response. And I also don't think it's helpful for people in the media to be like, yes, like it's totally possible that Kamala Harris, you know, was going to get assassinated. <laughs> okay. But, but what are they, but what should they have said to be fair? Uh, why do you think that? Or just not have played <laughs> or just not have played that, that not have played that clip because it was irrational? Like I just I don't I think there's a lot of catastrophizing and I don't think it helps when the media sort of leans into that. Um, right. Okay. So there 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 was a general shift, we think. Um and I'll include show notes of some of my favorite episodes. They did an episode about I think called the missing hit last year that everyone freaked out about because I thought it was in fact brilliant. I mean, you it's sort of what was that one about? This kid has a little snippet of song stuck in his head, and it's about PJ's efforts to like try to find where that song came from, and it just takes all these twists and turns. Yeah, they do. They do do some good work. You know, no show uh, is always great. I've I've overall liked it a lot, and and I just you know I probably it probably has influenced some of my 
style too. So yeah, I just, I don't want to pretend to not be a big fan of it. I have been for a long time. Um, but okay. So should we jump to what's gone on recently, which I can explain? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. So, uh, they recently launched this like, uh, four part series called the test kitchen that got a lot of attention, especially among media types. It's produced by Sruthi Pinamaneni and she's a, she's a producer at the show who's done some other really good work. It basically tells the story of what happened at Bon Appetit from Adam Rappaport's arrival as editor in 2010 through basically this decade of, like you said, many media outlets trying to just be more sensitive and be more diverse. And at Bon Appetit, uh, things really came to a head when Adam Rappaport was fired after photos of him basically dressed up as a Puerto Rican at a Halloween party surfaced, right? Yeah, the uh, the photo was at least 10 years old, maybe 15 years old. But yes, it resurfaced after um, this summer after the, the death of George Floyd when we were having our um, racial reckoning, I think is how it's it's referred to in the media. Yes. So so I think the context that's useful to know is like if you're the kind of person interested in a show about this, you know the story ends with Adam Rappaport being ousted over a, a photo that many people, you know, interpreted as racist. Um, the story talks to a bunch of people of color who worked at Bon Appetit trying to explain what it was like to work at this very weird place that was partly like I mean, don't you think it's safe to say it was like partly sort of an Adam Rappaport cult of personality? Yeah, it seemed he was brought in to change the magazine and he's and he was not a food guy. He had been an editor at GQ and he and he made Bon Appetit into sort of the uh the the hip um magazine that it is today or was today at least until until um all this shit happened. Yeah, and um he's it, it's sort of this world of like the, I think Sruthi at one point said it's like the kind of like skinny white person who likes the national. Um, I'm not far from this world, despite not being particularly skinny, but like it, it's this very specific media type who tends to live in Brooklyn, who tends to come from wealthier backgrounds and who tends to be white. And one thing that comes through pretty viscerally is that if you are one of the few people of color in a white organization, there is at the very least going to be some tension and some friction. And I think like whatever else you think of the reporting or specific claims, I don't know. That just seems like straightforwardly obvious to me as just like an aspect of, of human nature, right? Sure. Um, Shruthi and, and the other producers at Reply All made what I thought was a very bizarre editorial decision, which was to only the feature the voices of people of color on the show. Um, apparently, they've talked to lots of white people on the show, but you will never hear from the white people in the show. <laughs> There were there was some confusion about this. Is this just in the first two episodes or for the whole span? I, I think this is the whole series. Okay. So it's a majority white institution. And that's part of the reason, at least according to Shruthi Panamini's reporting, that it it is racist. Um, and I don't think that they are a sort of mincing words here. There are lots of what I would call microaggressions that they pin they pin they they point to and they say these are examples of racism. However, well, but sorry, go ahead. But they do sort of. Sorry, I'm not trying to. I don't want us to get bogged down in the description, but I do think the show does a pretty nuanced job of explaining how, like, if you're one of these young staffers of colors, it's hard to know exactly what to make of a given interaction. Like, sometimes there's some ambiguity there. I mean, I think that they're pretty clear in in the sense that they are accusing the white some of the white people in this show of racism. I don't think they're mincing words there at all. There are there are uh, incidents that. I think could be racist and they could also not be racist. Like there's in the, in the second episode, um, 
a guy is is being interviewed about his efforts to start the sort of diversity initiatives at at Bon Appetit, and he's in a meeting with Adam Rappaport. And Adam Rappaport is on his phone the whole time. And Truthy later says, well, he's like very ADD. And apparently he did this in lots of meetings. But the the implication is still he does not respect this guy because of race. Yeah, I think so. That was what. Okay, we're only halfway through a four episode arc. But that's what's adulterated a little bit for me is like. In the first episode, there's mention of this like nightmare editor who would walk around with a drink in hand who made just like straightforwardly anti-Asian remarks at least once. Like he seemed pretty racist and definitely an asshole and definitely difficult to work with. One moment jumped out at me. And and whereas there are other points in the series where I could viscerally understand where these staffers were coming from and the, you know, the sense of loneliness or disconnection from the organization they felt. This other story just struck me as like perhaps being a bit too credulous of these young people's accounts. So this is a a young woman named Ryan. We're introduced to her. We're told she was a recent Stanford graduate who got a job as an executive assistant for Adam Rappaport. Here's what she says, uh, telling a story about one of her colleagues asking her if she's doing all right. And I was like, well, I'm not depressed, actually. I just have a hard time walking around the World Trade Center and seeing people who look like me underrepresented in your offices, but overrepresented as your building staff, like cleaning, cooking for you, like all of these things. And it's like, those are my friends. Those are a lot of my friends at the World Trade Center. And that was really getting to me. And that was only 2018. And I just started there. I was like the Freedom Tower, my ass. This place is oppressive as fuck. She then tells a story about uh, a supposedly negative experience, which was she was asked to clean out a conference room prior to a meeting, which is something you are asked to do if you are a recent college graduate who is an executive assistant. And and this story struck me as weird, and I ended up Googling her name. Her name is very Googleable. We're not going to say it here because I don't want to launch a pylon. If you want to hear her name, listen to the series. She didn't just go to Stanford. Her mom went to Stanford. Her grandma went to Stanford. And she went to a prep school. That seems to be expensive. This doesn't mean she's wealthy, but most people who are third-generation Ivy Leaguers have money. And it casts the story in a very different light when you see what she's complaining about and, and saying she's like, you know, maybe she is friends with all the maintenance staff, but but she's coming from a wealthy position into a job people would kill for and then complaining about having to do something you often have to do in journalism when you're 22 or 23 or 24. Um, So I I thought that, you know, a story like that sort of saps the series credibility a little bit because you don't need to include it. You can just be like, this story doesn't really make sense given this girl's background, at least arguably. Right. There's one incident that they also, um, someone raises as an example of this sort of tone deafness. They sent some guy to France to do a wine tasting, um, who didn't know anything about wine. Uh, it turns out he was Asian. That was, <laughs> I think that was sort of an aside. But so you do have these, you know, things that. Wait, they didn't mention that in the show, right? Yeah, no, they did. Oh, they did. Okay. So it's interesting. It's like, I think in some ways this shows you how far America actually has made in terms of, of, of racial progress. And, and I'm, I understand that this could maybe be perceived, what I'm about to say, be perceived as, as naive to some people. Um, and I apologize for that. But what we're focusing now, at least in places like Bon Appetit or in media are really 
microaggressions for the most part. Not always, but for the most part, we're talking about microaggressions. Um, so things that wouldn't probably not have registered 30 years ago as hugely problematic now are registering as, as hugely problematic and people want to address them. And I, you know, that's progress. We are talking about sort of things that could be perceived as racism, are perceived as racism by some people, but can also be explained away as just like a toxic work workplace. And that's part of the tension in this story. Yeah. Don't, but don't you think, um, I mean, for one thing, part of the series is just about like the staff being overwhelmingly white, uh, which I think is like a totally fair thing to mention, especially if media is going to pretend to be enlightened on these issues. Like there are real structural reasons. I do think it's harder, especially if you're from a poorer group. It's not just like white versus everyone else, but like you need money often to break into media for various reasons. Absolutely. They're not going to talk about this on this show. They don't talk about class on the show. I mean, maybe they will in the next couple of episodes. Well, I'm hoping they get to it, but it's been so absent. And that's like to to surface the complaint of a Stanford grad who had to do the busy work you often have to do, but to talk so little about like the structural reasons, it's much more likely like if you're from a Stanford family, you'll get, I don't know. I, I, I have trouble with that. I also think like white liberals in particular have a pretty pathological relationship to like quote unquote ethnic culture. And I think at Bon Bon Appetit, a lot of this reporting suggests like, these clueless white editors knew that they shouldn't just be doing like mayonnaise sandwiches or whatever, but they've had real trouble figuring out how to present this like quote unquote unfamiliar food in a way that a lot of other people feel is like respectful. And I feel like you can accept that argument without going full down the road of like bad eater articles about cultural appropriation. No, yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, there are clearly some insensitivities within the magazine. Like there's um, a guy who's Latino who um, is upset that he is consistently asked to make Mexican food. And there's an Asian woman who's who's mad that she's not asked to, to make Asian food, that, that white people are asked to make Asian food. And I do think there is some, like, if I were, you know, uh, you know, fuck Norwegian or something like that, and I grew up eating like, nasty oily fish and i worked at a place where they like assign the person from i don't know oklahoma to do the story on nasty slimy fish i'd probably be offended by that or or at least maybe not even offended but just sort of annoyed that like it makes sense to give me this story and not the person who is coming to this food fresh so there's like clearly some issues about like who was getting assignments yes and and f- now that you mentioned i realize there's basically no norwegian representation in ba which is a whole separate issue it's that's a huge issue uh, Allison roman do you know what her what her we need to do do a dna dna test that's another thing so like in the first episode, there's a storyline about Alison Roman, who we've talked about on the show before. I would love to hear Alison Roman's take on this, but she's white, so we're not going to hear it. <laughs> well, we think she's white. Like you said, we need a DNA test. Uh, that's true. That's true. Okay. So we're going to listen to the rest of this. Maybe we'll have more to say about it. Maybe we won't. I just, the line I want to make sure we stay on is like, I, I, I've said this before, but the few times that like I've been the only Jew in an environment, even that is really unpleasant sometimes when certain subjects come up. I am very sympathetic to someone who is like in a setting where they're a minority and certain issues come up and then they're treated as like sort of the exemplar of that group. It's sure. not fun. And and whatever shitty work I had to do as an intern and so on, I never really had to worry about anything like that. So I don't want to come across as insensitive to stuff like that. But I did like – Again, the Stanford grad who has to clean up an office, I sort of rolled my eye at that just because like, come on. Yeah. 
There is this in, in the first show, they talk about how Adam Rappaport was promoting people who he wanted to hang out with and he wanted to hang out apparently mostly with white people like him. Um, you know, I don't know if that's racism. Um, what's the, what's the other word for this? Hebophilia, homophilia, hebophilia, homophilia, homophilia, hebophilia. Right. Adam Rappaport has hebophilia. What is the one the, the the appropriate term for what we're talking about right now? Homo. Okay, homophilia is the idea that like we're we are attracted to people who are similar to us, and this is another way where like I sort of feel like maybe the podcast missed the point a little bit, and maybe I'm just echoing what you're saying, but like. If Adam Rappaport hires people he wants to hang out with, he's a moron. You should do the opposite. This is why we can work together because there's no way I would ever hang out with you. <laughs> exactly. We we hate each other so much. No, but that's like – it's a sign of a toxic workplace culture. And I think one of the results of that is going to be people who are non-white are at an advantage. But like frankly, do you think he was going to hire a lot of like white evangelicals or white people from poor backgrounds? It's a Ortho- Orthodox Jews. Right. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But it does point to like – a pretty toxic situation. One of these kids who applied for the job was like worried that his Instagram feed wasn't cool enough and that Adam Rappaport wouldn't like it. I just feel bad for like anyone. I mean, it's easy for me to say now because I'm recording this for my kitchen, but like it would suck to like have to suck up to like, who the fuck cares what Adam Rappaport thinks is cool on Instagram. New New York media is just like really broken. Right. And it turns out that Bon Appetit might in fact not be the only New York media company with a, Toxic Workplace. We'll be back after a word from our sponsors. Jesse, this last year has been really tough, but despite everything that's happened in the world, I found one thing that makes life worth living. Is it making this podcast with me? No, dumbass. It's my butthole sprayer. What is that? Is that like a garden hose that cleans your butt? Of course not. I haven't used a garden hose in ages. I use the Hello Tushy 3.0 Modern Bidet Attachment, and it's the future of butt wiping. It's easy to install, simple to use, and it'll leave your butthole sparkling clean as freshly fallen snow. I like it so much, every time I use the bathroom, my wife thinks I'm taking a shower. The Smart Spray automatic self-cleaning nozzle makes your toilet as easy to clean as your butt. And every Hello Tushy Bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. If you've already got a tush on your pot, upgrade to the new 3.0 model. And if you're new to the revolution, join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean butt with every flush. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod to get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off. hellotushy.com slash barpod. Can I make one last point before I jump to that? Sure. It's weird to me. Like we, we speak pretty freely on this podcast. You, uh, regularly rant against Sicilians and various other ethnic groups. Hey, we're all Italian if you go back far enough. <laughs> People don't know this, but a billion years ago, there was just one continent shaped like a giant Italy. One giant boot. So we're all Italian. It's just like, okay, as we recorded that first segment, I felt weird and bad even suggesting that some of these incidents weren't racist. And this is on a show where I feel like we speak pretty freely and we like sometimes say controversial stuff, but it's just like – it's so hard to say that. It's such like an important accusation, but I don't know. I, I It feels like we're sometimes asked to turn off the skepticism we'd apply to most other stuff when this subject comes up. Yeah, right. I'm I'm reminded of an incident. This was not at The Stranger. This is a, a previous – a place that I worked previous um, 
I won't mention the name of it. Stormfront. Yeah. <laughs> Here is an example of an allegedly racist incident that happened at my place of work. One of my coworkers put a GIF in a post, and the GIF was of uh, Wednesday Adams from the Adams family wearing braids, and it was she had like she was dressed like a sort of in a Native American costume for some reason. Do you remember that that like scene from the Adams family? Probably the movie. Yeah, uh, I think so. I don't know. Okay, so it's just it's Wednesday Adams with braids and like a feather or something like that. So she's clearly this is like filmed in the nineties. She's clearly like in. Native American costume. I guess now we would call that like brown face, but she's wearing a, an Indian costume. And one of my colleagues put a gif of that in a post. It was like around Halloween or something like that or Thanksgiving. And there was a one of my colleagues who was a person of color really took issue to that and and said it was like deeply offensive and deeply racist. And a few of us who were not people of color really didn't understand why this was perceived as racist. I still don't entirely understand why this was racist. But this took up so much brain space within like that week of the organization was like resolving this conflict over what one person perceived as racist and what a lot of people didn't perceive as racist because the intention wasn't to be racist. And which sort of goes back to what we've been talking about the show in the last couple of, of episodes, intent versus impact. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, that's part of what's going on here is like, you can really experience something that feels to you like racism. And the person who has done the offense really does not think that they were being racist. And you're just having two different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Yes, it's complicated. And again, like I'm trying to, you know, balance here, understand what it would be like to be diversifying one of these outlets, which wouldn't be fun. But also, yeah, I think it's okay to maintain our skepticism when it comes to like individual specific claims, which brings us to the sort of main event of all this, right? Right. So on February 16th, a former Gimlet employee named Eric Eddings posted a long tweet thread on Twitter. Um, it begins. Last week, I got an email from Shruti about Reply All's Test Kitchen series. I had been avoiding listening, but once I did, I felt gaslit. The truth is, Reply All, and specifically PJ and Shruti, contributed to a near-identical toxic dynamic at Gimlet. This will be a longer thread. Apologies. Um, and so Eric, who he produced a show for Gimlet called The Nod, along with his uh, longtime co-host, um, Brittany Luce, and the show, they had a a negative, uh, I think, split up with Gimlet. Their show ended up leaving Gimlet. Um, they went to Quibi, and then Quibi crashed and burned. So I, I think that the show is no longer on air. Um, but he tells this story about his attempts to unionize at Gimlet. So he was a union organizer. And PJ and Shruti, it turns out, were uh, campaigning against the union, the unionization effort. Um, so he makes a few specific claims about PJ and Shruti, uh, the most damning of which is, he writes, I've personally seen harassing messages sent by PJ to other organizing committee members, heard him denigrate other colleagues. He and I had a meeting where I simply begged him not to attack the union. He told me he was slacking with Shruti and told me that she had quote, called me a piece of shit and asked him to tell me, end quote. I told him we weren't going to disrespect each other. He said, well, let, quote, let me stop slacking with Shruti. We went back and forth. I told him specific stories about POC who felt like they had been discriminated against, the countless people who felt they had no pathway to promotion and the full scope of what we wanted to achieve. He wasn't moved. Um, so PJ, it seems, 
Um, and Shruti also fought against this this effort to unionize, which ultimately was successful. They did end up uh, unionizing in 2019. We were unable to find the specific demands. Um, well, and, and I should say it's it's un, it's unclear from this thread if the demands were simply we want to unionize, like it was notice of intent to unionize versus like specific demands about diversity and how to approach it, right? Like right. we don't know even what the demands encompass. Right. So this. So what I've read, there were there was reporting on Gimlet's effort to unionize when it was happening. From what I read in these media reports, and you can look at uh, as well, like there's a Gimlet Union website. They were demanding, and we don't know the specifics here, but something that a bunch of media companies that have unionized in the last few years have demanded, which is almost less about like working conditions and maternity leave and and, and even money, although I, I don't know if money was the case in this particular issue, maybe compensation for contract workers was an issue, but more about this sort of diversity, equity and inclusion agendas. So it's almost more ideological than it is rooted in sort of like uh, worker protections. I guess those two, these two things are connected in some way. Well, yeah, I'm trying to look at the document you sent me that they posted. I mean, we don't know for sure what was discussed, right? And what the breakdown is between straightforward meat and potato issues. Well, I mean, in Eric's thread, the entire thread is about the diversity issues. Right. Um, so it seems to be that the diversity issues were a, a like massive part of the union of the union. Uh, Azation effort. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this page. They wanted clear and fair policies around contractor employment, straightforward processes for advancement and promotion. It looks like a mix. And I guess maybe the, the context that um, not everyone might know is that like in recent years, as media has collapsed, especially in places like New York and DC, there really has been a push to form unions to buffer especially lower level staffers against just like this ridiculous labor environment. And People people take this really seriously, and it's seen as like I do think just being against a union drive is seen as like a really a black mark at this point. So Eric's tweet storm like seems to be partly about that, but it's also about these sort of like ambiguous interactions where you don't have the full story. So like that quote you read about someone calling someone a piece of shit, it's like sort of hard to even parse given like where the pronouns are. It's like it's unclear who exactly did what to who and in what context and. You know, revealing that your coworker talked shit about colleagues again. Who doesn't talk shit about their colleagues? Right. So this uh, obviously has made like major waves in in audio world and media world. Um, it was interesting to see people who were praising Bon Appetit, the Bon Appetit show last week, immediately disavow disavow PJ and Shruti and reply all. It did not take any fucking second for a lot of these people to just like turn on their heel and be like, no, actually, I know that we were friends in the past, but never mind, you're trash now. And also, I have no idea, you know, why Shruti and PJ in particular might have fought back against unionization. But there are reasons that people don't want places unionized. For one thing, PJ and Alex were two of the earliest employees of Gimlet. I am assuming that they have equity in the company. Gimlet was sold to Spotify. They probably got a fucking ton of money. Um, they are, you know, they were not, PJ was not Eric's boss or anything like that, but because they were such early employees of the company, I think in part, they have a different relationship with management. If you're PJ's coworker, I'm sure that could be really frustrating, but also like there can still be reasons that you think that it's going to hurt the company or it's going to help hurt yourself personally. It's possible that he objected to this sort of ideological agenda that was also coupled with the unionization. I mean, 
like if a, I don't I'm pro union sort of broadly. If somebody came to my workplace and said, like, we're going to have a union and the union's focus is going to be on diversity, equity and inclusion, I don't think I'd be joining because you're against those things. Because because I'm a racist, yes. No, because I don't because it's this it, there's a particular ideology that I don't necessarily agree with. Um and I don't think that I would want it uh, institutionalized within within my place of work. I mean, you know, what was the, what was the some of the insane like union demands at the at the New York Times? Like didn't they want to have like veto power over problematic articles or something like that? They Yes, yeah, some of the people at the Times Union started a list of problematic articles that they wanted to like present to management. And in other ways, while I think beside behind the scenes, they likely do some really good work, they're clearly geared like there's a difference between the obviously unobjectionable point. We value diversity. We want to make sure people get paid fairly without skin color getting into it. And then this this more specific set of demands like you know, that go along with certain kinds of diversity trainings. And and I think unions, from what I can tell, are sort of like hotbeds of both. And I could, like you, I could see like, uh, one of the things that was reported about the New York Times by Reeves Weedman in New York Magazine was that some people within the Times are like, why is the union spending its time on this stuff? Right. Like, there are much bigger fights, including about our next contract to have. So I guess other than the fact um, that this is just like, a very interesting example of like milkshake duck theory where you get 15 minutes of everyone loving you and then you turn out to be problematic. Um, a, a couple things. One is like watching everyone in media world on Twitter immediately treat this story as true. Immediately. Exactly the way Eric told it. Immediately. Including people who must have relationships to PJ and Alex and Sruthi. Oh, absolutely. It's disturbing. That's like, that's not, these are journalists. It doesn't mean Eric isn't right. It means we've heard one side of the story. And if you search for his tweet or PJ Vote's name or Reply All's name, you would think they'd been like convicted in a court of law of some workplace atrocity. You know, I, I sort of appreciate it though, because according to the rules of their own podcast about Bon Appetit, white people should not be heard. So Shruti is not white, <laughs> but PJ, you just, sorry, dude, maybe you can read a statement, but nobody's going to hear your voice. I mean, actually, I want to, I want to go back to that for a second because I think it's, it, I think it's important to, to specify why in part I object to, to their editorial choice to not have any white people on the show. And the reason is because it's totally possible that they are actually representing what, like, 100% of what happened at Bon Appetit. But there would be, no, there's no way for me to know that because I'm not hearing from people, right? So even if they did their due diligence and they talked to everybody on staff and they sort of know exactly what was going on, if you're only presenting the voices of the people you consider to be the protagonist, it just feels, it feels undone. It feels halfway finished. Um, anyway. She does sometimes like say, okay, I checked about this with Adam or with white staffers and here's what they said. But I agree. Like, again, going back to the Stanford grad story, like those stories are clearly treated much less skeptically than any sort of protestations of like, no, that's not what happened right. would be. Um, yeah. So I, I just, I don't know. Like if you watch this unfold online, it, it does reveal how the insane crabs in a barrel aspect of media right now, like, you know, you click on the profile of most of the people jumping on this this hate train and like a lot of people don't have a lot of work. There's a lot of resentment. Surely reply all. I'm not saying this explains the whole thing, but like how could you not be a little bit jealous of their success? And I just think like all these valid and questionable complaints all get mixed into this like 
online pylon plasma, it can be hard to like pull apart what really happened. Yeah. So I've been I've been spending some time in the reply all subreddit since uh since all of this started unfolding. And it's funny because PJ a couple days ago, PJ posted himself, posted on the reply all subreddit. And it's a long post, but what he basically said is like, I've been reading this subreddit. And it seems to me that you guys are uh, dismissing the claims of racism in Bon Appetit. And you don't think that this is a show about racism. You think this is a show about toxic, toxic workplaces. Well, you're wrong. Um, and, and then he also says, like, you know, you're complaining about this show, like taking a turn towards the political. Well, there are sitcoms. Go watch a sitcom if you want to show that. He said it- that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just like this, this, there's this. It's so fucking smug. Media has not done a good job lately of, of hiding their contempt for many people. Right. So he posts this in, in this reply all subreddit saying like, basically, if you don't like the direction that the show is gone, fuck you. And then two days later, he gets called out in an incredibly public manner for his own, for his own alleged racism. Um, yeah, this is like, it's it's very weird. I just it's so weird to me that it feels controversial to say like if you're a professional journalist and someone is getting piled on and attacked, you're allowed to just like wait and not immediately chime in about it, but it does seem like sort of like a race to show you're on the right side of it and in as hyperbolic language as possible. And it could be a month from now we find the true details and they're as awful as suggested, but like think of all the times you've seen someone post a burn thread about how horrible someone else is. It's usually the case that when you get the full story, it's like if if the heat was at a 10, the true story is usually like a 7 or an 8, right? If that Right. Right. And, and this is not to say that people should be defending PJ and Truthy um at all. What it no, is No, same to deal. Say, we don't we don't right, know. Right. We don't know. What it is to say is that like sometimes you can just like keep your mouth shut for a little <gasps> while. Although I will say like if you know someone like socially or professionally and they come under attack online, it's not like the worst thing in the world for your default to be to defend them. Although, okay, I, I agree with you, especially if it's your friend. But you remember the Gia Tolentino story where Gia Tolentino, it turns out her parents were. <laughs> Wait, let me try to, if memory serves, Gia Tolentino literally owned hundreds of slaves, right? It was something like that. Yes. So it turns out that her parents were prosecuted for like human, for like human trafficking, basically. And she wrote this, this like, this news got out and she wrote a blog post about it and totally dismissed you know the like she just didn't consider the victims of her parents alleged crimes whatsoever it was this like very like pity me self-aggrandizing blog post and uh definitely did not center the victims and then a bunch of her like blue check mark friends on twitter immediately jumped to her defense and i found that like really egregiously bad too (laughs) yeah you people can't do anything right yeah it's weird, the question of who gets defended and when. And it's not just race, because Sruthi is, is I believe, Indian-American. Um, uh, yeah, it's complicated. I just, I, whenever one of these, like, real pylons ensues, I, I automatically feel a little bit bad for the victims, because almost certainly they're being misrepresented in some way. But maybe we'll find out these people really acted in a shitty manner in the workplace. Uh, people were already joking that someone should do a four-part podcast series about the internal race issues at Reply All or at Gimlet. Yeah, yeah. I have heard – over the years, I have heard rumblings that Gimlet is not a great place to work. You know, and I think that if you – it was, you know, started by a former NPR guy – 
It was this independent company. And I worked at places like that where like you expect to be treated better at the small independent company than you would at a giant corporation. And oftentimes you're not. And it's more disheartening and more disillusioning, I think, um, because you have higher expectations for people who maybe share your political values. You know, that's that's how it is in every fucking industry, though. Well, I mean, Bloomberg d- did that whole series startup about getting Gimlet off the ground. And it, it's very entertaining and interesting. But uh, journalists are not naturally good managers, I don't think. I think that's part of the problem sometimes. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Do we have anything else to say about this situation? Oh, I mean, one thing I should say is that if you're as disgusted by PJ Vote and Alex, whatever, and the other one, Goldman, if you're just as disgusted as we are, you should just stop listening to them and listen to us instead because we have none of those problems here. Yeah, this was actually my favorite part of of the uh, reply all Reddit. Somebody was saying who's gonna do the um, who's gonna who's gonna take on the reply all series or the reply all racism, and and the first suggestion was blocked and reported. Naturally. So I guess we have some overlap there. Except we're not going to do any reporting whatsoever. We're just going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, if anybody at Gimlet wants to leak us these documents, we will take them. If anyone at Gimlet has any thoughts, let us know. Um, yeah, it's uh... – oh, the other thing we should mention, I'm going to send you the MP3 to just stitch it in here. But here's what Sruthi said at the end of the second episode. The company where I work, Gimlet, had its own version of these problems. The white people who ran the place hired people of color promised them change that never quite seemed to materialize. A group of employees tried to fix the place themselves, and eventually things ended up as these things often do, in a union drive. Plenty of people joined that fight. I did not. To the extent I talked about it, I talked about the way that their fight was stepping on my toes. It took eight months of reporting on Bon Appetit for me to see how wrong I was about all of that. And if I'm honest... I'm still processing the anger that I feel toward myself. I wish I'd made different choices. But I also think that ideally, employees shouldn't have to make those kinds of choices at all. Choices like that end up defining our jobs when the people in charge have not done theirs. Because after all, they are the ones with the real power. So that that suggests that as she's recording or producing the series, she knows maybe some shit is on the horizon, right? Yeah, uh, (laughs) I would imagine so. It'll be interesting to see how they address this in the show. I mean, I assume that the previous or that the the two final episodes are already done, um, which would be just a disaster from like an editorial perspective. You have like two. And these things take a long fucking time to make. Um, Not this podcast, their podcast. And, you know, you have these two episodes in the can and then all of a sudden there's this huge outcry from your own listeners uh yeah i think it's not gonna fly for them to not address it so i anticipate we will be hearing about this from reply all soon all right well uh i'm glad we completely resolved this there are no major outstanding questions as always if you would like to compliment us on our job well done we are at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com barpod.org is our merch store oh my god are the mugs flying off the shelves right Katie, I'm not making this up. It's crazy. We're going to run out soon, right? Just the number of sales. The uh, the young children in my basement cranking out the mugs have been very busy this week. <laughs> 
We are we have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported. Most important of all is our Patreon, where you can get at least three extra episodes a week, as well as a back catalog of dozens of extra episodes. Patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Uh, I think our next Patreon episode is going to be about this New York Times article about Slate Star Codex, whole other media controversy, and then we're going to ignore the New York Times, hopefully forever. Katie, am I forgetting anything? Nope, I think that's it for this week. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, the Blocked and Reported union collapsed amidst the acrimonious Friday pizza dispute. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, the cancellation of Reply All was inevitable the moment Alex Goldman blocked me. Jesse, are you still there? Wait, what? Isn't the... Why are we still here? Isn't the episode over? Yeah, the episode is over, but... We are, this is a day later. We recorded the main episode on Wednesday. We are now coming to you on Thursday. It's been 24 hours since we, we closed the lid on that one. Oh, I have God. gone on to live a productive <laughs> life. You have, I, I assume, been sitting in front of your television, refreshing your Twitter feed. Um, yeah, we're back. No, this is one of the only productive days I've had. I should not, Katie, I should not be here right now. What did you do today? My Thursday was spent fucking. So a while ago, my publisher was like, do you want an actor to read your book for the audiobook, or do you want to do and it? And you said, yes, you want Katie Herzog <laughs> want to do Katie it. Katie Herzog to do it. Upon popular demand. Lots of people have asked for this. But so I don't know why they asked me to do it, because my voice sounds like if like Michael Sarah was hit with a ray that reversed his puberty, but <laughs> they let me do it. And I was like, I'm not going to, you know... So anyway, I, t- I had, I never have like a normal work day, but today I had to fucking commute into the city and sit in a booth and for four hours read my own fucking book into a microphone, which is just like not, it's not fun. So did you go and correct errors in your book while you were reading? <laughs> yeah. The audio version is completely different. It's much more autobiographical than about the replication crisis. It's about our relationship and how it's evolved. Lots more pizza recipes. Lots more pizza recipes. I do. You do have to change as we have seen to as we have heard, which is a real mindfuck. Oh, God. Geez. Sounds terribly painful. Well, uh, thank you for coming back to work after your long day of reading your own book. <laughs> we are here to discuss developments that have happened in the past 24 hours about Reply All. Yeah. Like, we've had other instances where we stop recording and then the universe is like, Let's render your episode out of date immediately. But this was like a particularly crazy version because not long after we stopped recording, both Shruti Pinamaneni and PJ Vote fucking stepped down from Reply All. Shruti was going to anyway after this series. PJ is now gone for good, Vulture reported. So it's just like this story escalated so quickly. Oh my God, it's really crazy. So I don't know that we mentioned this in the the main episode, but Reply All brought on a new host a couple months ago. His name is Emmanuel Dotsi, I believe. And so he and Alex Goldman are going, apparently, to continue hosting the podcast on their own, presumably. There's apparently going to be a meeting uh, with Gimlet and Reply All employees this week, um, but I assume that they're not going to kill it. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but it's not... Do you think the podcast can survive in anything like its its blockbuster form without those two co-hosts? I mean, 
if they it's possible that they could like pivot to they've already pivoted to like a pretty woke direction and i suppose they could go even more woke and make it just about like social justice issues that would be fucking (laughs) unlistenable totally unlistenable so no alex goldman co-hosting a social justice wait actually can i ask you one quick personal question yeah you're usually so nonchalant about people being mean to you online you mentioned Alex Goldman blocking you several times, both <laughs> both on this podcast and privately. I presume it's all you talk about with your wife. Only what, thing. What's, what's your fucking deal? I just, it annoys me that he blocked me because why? Like, why did Alex Goldman fucking block me? Why? <laughs> Wait, sorry, what did sorry, I do? Hold on. I just want to make sure. You're asking me to answer the question, why okay. would someone block you? Right. Okay. So we all know the answer. But as far as I know, I had never interacted with him on Twitter. So it was a preemptive blocking, which is annoying. However, I think that PJ also used to follow me and he doesn't follow me anymore. So I guess I kind of hate both of them, really. But I think the same thing happened to me. Like, uh, I checked to see if Alex had tweeted anything. He's blocked me, which I'd forgotten. Um, Wait, Alex blocked you too? Yeah, it's fine. He blocked you. What did we do? So the most insecure people in media right now are like white dudes in their 30s and up. They need they need to be on guard against any infection of the unrighteous. It's like that's what it feels like. And yeah. the thing is, it's like Alex. I don't know these people personally. Like I've had like DMs with both of them when I worked in public radio, not for years. They might not even realize that I'm like the same person that they had like friendly DMs with years ago. And they used racial slurs constantly. Of course, of course. And I, I just like. I don't know. There's something about their turn towards this sort of, I don't know, like for back, lack of a better term, wokeness that I find like particularly grating. The the podcast was so good because like whatever else was going on in the world, there was usually something very interesting and something humanistic. And some of the stuff going on at the moment is like sort of opposed to the idea that we should ever be able to just like turn off our brains and forget about the world's oppression and hardships. Right. Which PJ mentioned in his uh, note on Reddit was a disappointment (laughs) that- Which uh, aged like American cheese in the sun. Oh my God. Okay. So let's get to what happened. Yes. Do you want to tell it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, okay. So I, I don't know where I am in time and space right now. You've heard the rest of this podcast. If you're listening, the, there was this big set of accusations and, um, basic, was it the same day they went viral that both of them stepped down or was it? It was a day later. It was, they stepped down on Wednesday night, right after we recorded this podcast on Thursday morning, Vulture reported that. So PJ and, and Truthy both, uh, posted these sort of abject apologies yeah why don't i read pj great idea we need some little violins playing while you do this i wish i had his like for more masculine voice but my frail michael sarah voice will have to uh suffice hi everyone i deeply failed as an ally during the unionization era at gimlet i did not intend to stop the unionization effort and i am very glad it succeeded today they have my support in how in however i can lend it sick But at the time, I was a baby and a jerk about it in myriad ways. Reflecting on my behavior, I find it humiliating. I should have reflected on what it meant to not be on the same side of a movement largely led by young producers of color at my company. I did not. Those mistakes belong to me. I've asked for the team's permission to step away from Reply All. The people making the show are the same people who made all the things you've liked, and I hope you'll support them. That's not really true. They are wonderful, brilliant people. 
I am going to take some time to think and to listen, and then I'm going to try to figure out who I can help in podcasting and how, if they want that help. I'm not done working, but I don't think anyone needs me taking up space right now. I'm sorry to everyone I've disappointed. disappointed. PJ, can I read one response to that on Twitter that I fucking loved? Please do. <laughs> so good. It just summed up everything. Um, I'm not going to say this guy's name because he's a rando. And because I blew him up at a screenshot already. Here's one reply to the apology I just read, which was posted by someone on the worst day of his professional and possibly personal life. Oof. Leaving reply all like this centers the story on you. Just look at the comments to see a bunch of people who will now have a toxic takeaway from the Bon Appetit story and absolves you of using your voice to address this. I don't know the solution, but I can't help, but I can't help feeling this ain't it. This ain't it, chief. <laughs> this ain't it, PJ. Jesus Christ. So, Shruti That person is white is what very white by the way. I'm shocked. So, Shruti put out a statement of her own. I'll read part of this. My conduct around the diversity and union organization effort at, efforts at Gimlet was ill-informed, ignorant, and hurtful. I did not pay enough attention to the people of color with less power at Gimlet, and I should have used my power to support and elevate them further. For this, I feel great regret. I apologize to everyone I have let down. I am humbled by how much I still have to learn, and I am committed to doing the work. Doing the – okay, so yes, as you, as you implied with that uh... – appropriately condescending phrasing there's a lot of buzzwords in these apologies you could have uh you could have made an apology generator like the notes app should have a, a little like clippy that shows up and tells you like make sure to put in doing the work in your apology um so i i don't want to make fun of this too much because i actually feel very bad for both of these people because the fact remains we have no idea what the fuck happened and we have no idea if any of this was warranted and when everyone in your industry is mad at you and assumes the worst possible version of the story about you circulating is true. Like what the fuck else are you going to do? But apologize. The crazy thing to me about this is so, so Shruti was apparently according to an email that was sent from the managing editor of Gimlet media to the staff. Shruti was going to be working for other projects at Gimlet after this mini series about Bon Appetit concluded anyway. So that is happening apparently now. I don't know what's going to happen to the next two episodes of of the show. I cannot personally wait to hear them. Maybe this whole thing is just a fucking psyop to get people to listen to their fucking podcast. Um, This is how you get in the, uh, get in the top 10. So, which makes me think that we need to drum up some drama, Jesse, but PJ has permanently stepped down. So, the crazy thing about this to me is that nobody seemed to be asking for this. Like, I've been reading a lot of comments on Twitter and on Reddit about this over the last couple of days. I didn't see a single person say, PJ, you need to resign, which was actually kind of surprising because that's oftentimes the first thing that people do. But you just didn't see this. So uh, I have no idea what the internal dialogue was, if this was his decision or if he was pushed out. Um, but in that way, it seems like sort of a self-cancellation. And, and I should say, like, I don't know the financials of the Spotify deal with Gimlet, but I am guessing that PJ has money. So this probably is not the same thing as like a, you know, like a staffer at some at some paper being forced to resign or stepping down or, or being fired or whatever. I'm speaking out of my ass here, but he was an early employee at Gimlet. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I would imagine he has money. Um I guess to me, it's just like when you, I have been so creeped out watching this one dude's tweet storm get treated like the gospel truth, including like 
this is just one example. I could give tons of others, but like Matt Pierce, who's a longtime newspaper reporter, just tweets it as though he knows it's true. You don't you don't know it's true. We don't know exactly what happened. We know there was some union drive that they opposed, which I, I don't think is the most uncommon thing in the world. People pointed out that um, I guess it was six years ago now, but Drew McGarry, whose approval rating among like young pro-union journalists is probably 100 percent, opposed Gawker forming a union. Should he be canceled over that? So the the there are I mean we talked about this in the episode. There are lots of reasons that someone might oppose a union. They're just are. Yeah, it's not. It's not. I. I am very pro union. I think unions are important for media types, especially now, to defend themselves from just the meltdown of the whole industry. But yeah, it doesn't. You don't without knowing the details. So so the details are. PJ opposed the union drive. He didn't serve on some committee or like. Sorry to interrupt you, Jesse. We didn't go into this in the show, but in Eric Gettings. Uh, Twitter thread that sparked this whole thing, he says that the union went to reply all last because they sensed that there was going to be some resistance there. So they had sort of kept reply all out of the loop, which also might be a reason why somebody would oppose this union if you feel like you've been kept out of the loop. Yeah. So there, there's that. There's the stuff you talked about earlier in the podcast uh, 20 days ago, I think it was, where they reply all as like an early reply all host. You are on a different, you do have different incentives. You're sort of more like management, which like you should just be honest about like you, it's just a different relationship, but also you can reread Eric Edding's post. And there are all these like, okay, I've talked to PJ multiple times, asking him to do more to contribute to diversity efforts at the company, asking him to join the diversity group to lend a voice. When I spoke up at staff meetings, Anything to show the staff that he cared about the issue. Being the white guy talking about diversity is sort of a precarious position to be in. It's not always clear what the best way to do that is. I do not take it at face value that PJ Vote declining to be on some diversity in some diversity group means he did anything wrong. And it's fucking bizarre to me that professional journalists treat this as like as a thread rich of damning evidence. Obviously there was a real conflict there. Obviously PJ Vote and Shruti Pinamanini apologized, but like what the fuck? People think this is like enough evidence to to view these as horrible people? Yeah, this whole thing has unrolled so quickly. I've I don't think I've ever seen a fall from grace this quickly. Um the same people that I saw praising PJ last week have disavowed him. It, it's insane. And I feel – I sent an email to him and Sruthi. I'm sure they don't want to hear from me just being like <laughs> – You're, the, you're the, like the worst person who could possibly email them. Like if we don't like, like make it worse for him. Oh, God, Jesse Single likes me. <laughs> I mean I've, I, I've never been through anything on the magnitude of what they're going through. It's fucking horrible. I feel bad for them. I feel bad for anyone who goes through this. Um, you know, I could imagine outlying exceptions if they murdered someone. But like they're being painted as fucking bigots. One of them is a woman of color. We don't know what happened. It's like I feel like I want to repeat that a hundred times because it's so fucking such an obvious glaring aspect of this. And what's interesting is the reply all subreddit, like their crit- criticisms of both um, this and the Bon Appetit situation, they're making smarter points about the lack of evidence or the questionable reporting on this stuff than professional journalists are on Twitter. These are just random listeners of a podcast. What does that tell us? 
<laughs> nothing good, nothing good. Um, yeah, I've uh, talked to a few people in the industry and uh, nothing on the record, but I will say that what I'm hearing is that things are more complicated. The story is always more complicated than what you see on a Twitter thread. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would have thought that just by reading the tr- thread, because a lot of it doesn't make, again, someone called someone a piece of shit at work. Okay. What, 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 like, what's the context? It's so weird. Uh, so yeah, I mean, look, like spreading rumors is part of human nature. Dog piles are part of human nature, but seeing journalists do it. And you and I have obviously both been at the center of shit like this. It's just, it's weird that nobody is just like doing a little bit of reporting or maybe people are, we would talk to anyone who's, who has info to share about this, obviously. Cause like we're curious, but like, uh, it's so weird how like, charity is being pathologized and and just a little bit of skepticism is being pathologized and that that also includes like some of the reporting they did in the test kitchen like the stanford girl but like this is this is worse because two very specific people's reputations are on the line i i don't know man it's disturbing it's so interesting to know like after reply all has done this series that i don't think reply all would give reply all uh the benefit of the doubt No, not at all. That's what people were pointing out, especially because, you know, PJ's sort of snotty comment to all his subredditors. Right. uh, People were then like, okay, well, by your own podcast, evidentiary standards, you're an evil bigot, like, which is sort of true. So I have a feeling this will not be the last of the reply all test kitchen saga. I sort of think the podcast might be fucked. Like, if you go to the subreddit, which I've been impressed by, like it's a smart place because people can disagree without tearing one another's throats out, as I said on Twitter. Um, the average reply all listener does not give a shit about this, I don't think. I, I think they give a shit about PJ leaving. Oh, yeah. No, I know. They're no, but the all the like, holy shit, PJ's the worst is coming from fellow media people, which points to this divide where that I think we've brought up before, where editors assign and edit stories not really with regard to their audience, but with regard to the dumbest people in journalism and on Twitter, or the angriest at least. Each other, basically. Yeah, we should wait till there's more information out. Freddie DeBoer just wrote like a searing blog post about his bottomless hatred for like New York and Brooklyn media types. And one of the things he says, I think this is unfair, but only by a little, is that it's like all the unpopular kids in high school as adults decide to recreate high school dynamics, but they get to be on top. It feels like that's what's happening. Oh, my God. Yeah. PJ was the cool guy until like two days ago. It's over. All right. I guess we can leave it at that. Uh, I do think there's going to be more happening. If I have to hear your voice again in the next like three days, I'm going to fucking I don't know what. So please just... If you're involved in this story in any way, just fucking chill for a few days. Give us a weekend at least to catch up, okay? And uh, also leak us documents. Leak us everything. I want, like, everything. I don't know. Dog pics? (laughs) Whatever. If you work at Gimlet, leak us photographs of your dog, please. (laughs) Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.